News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, some tense moments when people could see a wildfire burning just south of Peachland. It is now considered under control, which is good news. That, according to the BC Wildfire Service. But what does this mean as we're dealing with this heat dome, high temperatures, dry conditions? What does it mean for the future of the forest fire season as well as seasons to come? Let's check in with Mike Flanagan, professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of of Alberta. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, can we make a connection, do you think, to what's happening right now, even to the forest fires we're seeing right now, the wildfires and climate change? Well, yeah, this is uh, not my area of research to attribute uh, heat waves to climate change, but my colleagues tell me that this is indeed a result of human-caused climate change, and we're seeing more of these extreme events at both ends, you know, high temperatures, flooding. Um, you know, last year, California had the heat and the fire. The Arctic was unprecedentedly warm, and they had lots of fires, and there was Australia before that. So, yeah, this is climate change signal um, here and now. And you mentioned some of the incidents or some of the bigger events that we've seen in the past. Are we able to look back and then also see uh, this happen, say, the Fort McMurray fires or record-breaking wildfires here uh, in B.C. as well, and make that connection that without the rising temperatures, maybe things, maybe A, they wouldn't have happened, or B, they wouldn't have been as severe? Well, they were much more likely to happen because of climate change. And some people say they were seven to 11 times more likely to happen because of climate change. So, you know, the higher we get, the more fires we see is the simple connection I make. And, you know, people say, well, whoa, 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 why temperature? You can understand wind. And here I'm talking about fire over a large area, like British Columbia, over a longer period of time, like a month or a fire season. Warmer weather, hotter weather means longer fire seasons, more lightning general. We haven't seen much yet, but it's coming, unfortunately. And then the third reason is the hotter it gets, the better the atmosphere is at sucking the moisture out of the fuel. And it's not a linear process. As it gets hotter and hotter, it gets much more effective at sucking that moisture out of the fuel. So the fuels are tinder dry. And so once, when they're like that, it's easy for a fire to start, easy for a fire to spread. And more fuel, that vegetation that's dried out, more of it's available to burn, which means higher intensity fires, which are difficult to impossible to put out. And when we look at that as well, and kind of those more extreme and severe events compared to natural, I mean, we do have fire, uh, forest fires every year, wildfires every year. Uh, some of them are, are left to burn, obviously not when we're talking about interface fires and there's people's homes and perhaps lives at risk. How do we know which, is it the severity of the fire or how do we know which events can be directly uh, attributed to climate change? So it's the extreme nature and you know, to understand the fire business, you need to know a few things. One is it's driven by extremes. So in Canada, 3% of the fires burn, 97% of the area burned. And most of those happen on a few critical days of extreme fire weather. And, you know, that's what we, there's the potential for that to happen in British Columbia with this heat wave. And I underline potential because um, it's important to realize there's a recipe for fire. 
and this applies in California or the Amazon or wherever, and in British Columbia. You need three things for a fire. The first thing is that the fuel, the vegetation. You know, my grass went from green to yellow. It will be brown soon unless I start watering it. So, you know, how dry the fuels are really important as we discussed. Ignition, humans and lightning, and third, hot, dry, windy weather. So you get all three, and so it's hot. Okay, well, that dries out the fuels. That's one category, you know, one ingredient. Hot, hot, dry, and windy. And that's the other ingredient. Well, the last ingredient, ignition. So if we can prevent human-caused fires, you know, that's a great help. Okay, but there's still lightning. And as I said, so far, their mass has been really hot and really stable and the southern central parts of BC, but that's starting to change as this hot air moves to the east, to Alberta and beyond, things start to change. And now we're starting to see some thunderstorms being predicted, you know, next couple of days. And the fuels are very receptive, so we could see lots of fire starts. What about when we look at what's happening around the planet? Uh, when we think back to the firefighters in Australia, it seems like a long time ago because we've been so focused on the pandemic, but those devastating fires in Australia, we've seen devastating fires as well in California. Can we link then what's happening in places where, yes, there have always been wildfires and forest fires, but can we link also uh, kind of those those events that are happening in different countries? So, yeah, we're seeing these extreme events and, you know, it's related to the circulation, the atmospheric circulation. We call them, you know, people call this a heat dome, but it's really an upper ridge. And it's air is sinking, warming, and drying. That's why it's so hot and dry. And these ridges seem to be stronger and lasting longer. And firefighters and fire researchers have known for 50, 60 years that these ridges are associated with these extreme fire activities. That's what happened in Australia. That's what happened in California. 4% of their area burned last year, which is you know crazy. Uh, 2017, 2018, British Columbia, I don't have to go very far back, and you know extreme fire seasons, record-breaking fire seasons. But there was more like you know 1% of the land base burned um, as opposed to 4%. So that, that's how extreme... Uh, California was, and Australia was even more extreme. So if we look at these things and we now are starting to see events, whether it's flood events, fire events that may have in the past been one in 100 year events, now becoming one in 15 year events, what can we do? So um, we have to reduce greenhouse gases, okay? And that's the it's not just going to be individuals. It's not just going to be cities. It's not just going to be governments, federal, provincial, industry. All countries, all those areas have to work in concert to reduce our greenhouse gases. And it's beginning, but it's not happening fast enough. And what a lot of people may not realize is that even if we stop producing greenhouse gases today, we'll continue to warm for 50 or 60 years because there's so much heat stored in our ocean systems that will be released. I mean, it's better if we stop right today, but the warming is going to continue, and so will things like fires and extreme events, uh, whether it's floods, uh, fire, drought, you name it. And when you say all countries, because I think that's one of the, the obstacles that people look at as well, is that we can do whatever we can, or perhaps do more in Canada, but if we don't get buy-in from other countries, more polluting countries, does it really have a big impact? Well, we have to do what, what we can do, but it's much more efficient if we get everyone on side. And, you know, we, we need to do more 
even Canada, our, our plan needs to be stronger. Um, we have to move faster because things are, you know, maybe accelerating because there may be some nasty surprises. Okay? Things are bad. And it, it looks like things are going to get worse in terms of extreme weather. But, you know, our models could be wrong and it could be much, much worse and we we'll, could get caught off guard. So, you know, the unknown unknowns, that's, that's what keeps me up. All right, Mike Flanagan, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us and talking about this this morning. My pleasure, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's find out what else is going on. Joining us now, Raji Sohal, Mornings with Simi contributor. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, last night, Surrey held their annual public hearing. It was on their annual uh, municipal financial report. And Mayor Doug McCallum began the meeting by acknowledging it was being held on unceded First Nations territory. He also noted the news of the unmarked graves, which he had said have uh, shaken Canadians to the core. Now, you might recall from uh, our conversation last week that this is back in the news again because he has refused, along with Safe Surrey, uh, to acknowledge um, the territorial uh, lands and unceded uh, lands. And so... That's very interesting. It just shows uh, the power of the people, I think, because there have there has been ramped up criticism against McCallum uh, for not agreeing to do these land acknowledgments. Still no apology. And then also at the uh, public hearing, there was a lot of criticism uh, that he faced over increased property taxes, over the ongoing uh, controversy around uh, Surrey RCMP, policing, and their own policing unit. And no cooling stations for the vulnerable populations in Surrey. Um, and one councillor, Councillor Linda Annis, accused uh, the city of being the only city of not providing them. And I'm not sure if that's true, Jill, but if it is, it's, it's alarming because uh, there is a vulnerable population that would definitely need something like cooling stations. And we have seen how in other parts of Metro Vancouver, um, the city's been able to uh, really activate those misting stations and offer cooling stations throughout the city pretty quickly after we we hit those high temperatures. Uh, Yeah, I was surprised by that, given the fact that uh, the temperatures we're dealing with, and like you said, so many other places have been able to do this quickly to make sure people have access to uh, the cooling systems uh, if they can. And one of the speakers, too, and everything's virtual, and and it was brought up, I know, that uh, Doug McCallum sometimes will cut people off. Uh, One of the speakers brought that up, saying, why are my property taxes way higher than Mm. what I've been told they were going to be? And what services am I getting? So many services have been cut back during the pandemic. Yeah, and literally over that very same issue in a, in a prior meeting, there that person was disconnected. Their call was disconnected by Mayor McCallum. And uh, I'm starting to see that in the local paper there, the Surrey leader, um, that that's being called out a little bit more. So perhaps he's watching his decorum and his habit of disconnecting calls uh, because he fears of being called out on that now because uh, that's it's not very mayoral to be disconnecting residents' calls when they are there for that very reason, to have their voices heard. Yeah, we'll see if that uh, changes. I know some uh, at the meeting, again, in the in the paper saying uh, when they get back to in-person, they will not be disconnected. All right, Raji, let's leave it there, but we'll talk to you a bit later on in the program. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi.
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. We've been talking a lot about the weather, about the current heat wave that much of BC is experiencing, talking about cooling stations for people checking in on others if they might be alone or you know somebody who might be in a situation where it's not able or they're not able to cool down. What about animals during the heat wave, though. What about keeping them safe? Well, joining me now is Dr. Adrian Walton, a veterinarian, also the owner of the Dudney Animal Hospital. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, good morning. Good morning. What types of issues are you seeing as far as pets, animals dealing with the heat wave? Well, we've actually had to send a couple of our patients to the emergency room for heat stroke. Uh, We had one show up uh, at 4 o'clock yesterday. Uh, Well, sorry, they called in and we had to send them directly there uh, just because of the fact that uh, it not only does it take time to cool them down, there's a lot of other things that go on, like these animals need intravenous fluids. And so if you are finding it later in the afternoon, you're probably better off going to an emergency clinic than your day practice as long as you can get there in a timely manner. Unfortunately, we're hearing from some of the emergency vets that we've actually lost a couple of animals over the weekend. So this is a really serious issue that people just sometimes don't take seriously enough. And when you say lost a couple of animals, is that that people waited too long or maybe left the animals at home not realizing how hot it was in their homes? The truth is, I haven't had a chance to talk to the vets specifically. Just we're a small community; we talk to one another, so we do hear that there have been some mortalities associated with the heat. Uh, do you think it's uh, also something in that we talked about so many people getting uh, furry members of their families, adding to their families during the pandemic? Is it people who maybe don't have a history of having pets or get how serious it can be? Well, for what I've seen with people in my clinic, that most of the people. It's not so much that they haven't had experience with pets. It's just with the pandemic being the way it is, all of a sudden you have a situation where you have to work and your dog is left at home and you don't realize how incredibly hot it's been getting in the houses. The thing is, is we're not really used to these heats. Uh, You know, I've seen numbers as low as 30% of houses have central air conditioning. And so you have somebody in an apartment, especially a south-facing apartment, and and you can get temperatures up into the the 30s very easily. And if there's no place for the animals to cool down, that could be a problem. What are the first signs then somebody should look for if we're talking specifically about dogs and the heat? What is the sign that something is going wrong? The most common thing that you're going to see at the very beginning is excessive panting. And I'm not just talking like your dog just went for a little run. There's exertion there. The the scary part is the next step where all of a sudden they stop panting and they tend to just be glassy-eyed. And we see this occasionally when we have dogs left in cars where they're in the bottom of the, the seat well and they're not panting, they're glazed. And that's the point where their temperatures are over 40 degrees body temp and life-threatening situation is, is coming pretty quick. Uh, so if, if you're at that point and you're not near an animal emergency or you need to do, you feel like you need to do something immediately, what should you do? Well, the first thing you do is take, and it's, you, you don't want it to be cold water, but uh, cool water and, and water down your animal. If you have um, like something like a, a, a cold drink, you can put it up against your pet's neck to try and cool the blood to your brain, to their brain. And one of the things that I've really been pushing over the last few years is keep a bottle of rubbing alcohol in your car. 
And what you can do is you can use that rubbing alcohol on your dog's foot pads, and because alcohol evaporates uh, and takes away more energy, it cools your dog down faster than water. So just put the rubbing alcohol right on the foot pads? Correct. Just make sure that they don't lick it, because uh, it is toxic. And we actually had one person who called in yesterday who had been using blankets that they had soaked and put into the freezer and were using that to cool down their dog. And I have to say, you don't want to do that. Uh, You're actually better off just using a wet towel. And the reason being is if you use an ice towel, it actually causes the skin to, uh, the blood supply to the skin to constrict so you don't get as much heat loss as you would like. Hmm. But, you can use, like, and, and this is one of the things I use with my, my pug, is a two-liter bottle of water that you've frozen. You wrap it in a towel and you put it next to your dog's bed. And what they do is, if they're cold, if they're hot, they can lean up against it to cool down. And then if they're feeling too cold, they can step away from it. And that's a much more effective way of keeping your pet cool in these temperatures. Because it might seem like the, the best thing to do is to submerge your dog, or submerge your dog, say, in a kiddie pool or a cold bath, but it, so is it not a good idea to put the dog right in cold water? It, it, you just don't want it to be very cold water. Cool water, tepid water is fine. That will help cool your animal down, definitely. But the problem is if it's too cold, you don't get the heat loss that you'd be wanting. And what about the difference in the types of dogs? You mentioned you have a pug, uh, little dogs, bigger dogs. Do you need to be, be uh, looking at the size of the dog and the kind, the breed of dog? Definitely. One of the biggest problems we have and one of the most common dogs that develop heat stroke are what we call the brachycephalic breeds, the dogs with smushed in faces. So like pugs, Boston Terriers, Bulldogs, all of these dogs have been congenitally deformed, to be honest with you, to the point where they cannot breathe through their nose and use it to cool themselves down like you would with a German Shepherd. And this doesn't just go for dogs. Cats, like the Himalayans and the Persians, also have similar problems cooling down. The other thing you've got to remember is that small dogs have greater surface areas, so they heat up a lot quicker. And, of course, black dogs also tend to absorb more heat and, and will overheat easier. Uh, you mentioned cats. I just wanted to quickly touch on that as well, because uh, people who have cats will know that wetting down a cat is never a, a fun thing to do in most scenarios. But is that what you should do as well? Or how do you make sure cats also stay cool? <laughs> that, that's a tough one, because <laughs> you kind of got to judge your cat. Um, some cats actually get more anxious when you, cool, when you wet them than if uh, you had just uh, left them alone. Other cats will tolerate it really well. But one of the things that you can do, and I find a lot of cats tolerate a little bit better is just use a mister and just kind of mist not directly on the cat but over the cat and it, let the water kind of settle down on them it also works great for birds all right good advice as we continue with these very high temperatures dr adrian walton will leave it there for today but thanks so much for coming on the show well thank you that is adrian walton veterinarian also the owner of the dudney animal hospital this is mornings with simi Well, as you know, casinos in this province have been shuttered since the pandemic first arrived. But now with phase three and more details on that expected this afternoon, phase three expected to start on July 1st. Will we see a return of that industry? Lara Jarrett joins me now, BC Lottery Corporation spokesperson. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Can we expect to see casinos reopen if they get the go ahead for July 1st? 
for sure. I think like all British Columbians were, were eagerly waiting to see if we move into step three of the province's restart plan. And, and yes, if we do move into step three, casinos and community gaming centers right across the province we're ready to reopen on July 1st. So it's a really exciting time for our industry. And will they look different? They will look different. Um, you know, we, we want to be able to bring back players in a really safe and slow way as we, as we reopen for the first time in about 16 months. So players will notice some changes, including that, you know, table games, slot machines, and other gambling equipment, they're going to be more spaced out than they were before. Um, there's going to be reduced occupancy uh, when we first reopen. So in conjunction with more spacing between games, there's only going to be allowed as many players in as there are active gaming seats on the casino floor. And then players are going to see things like physical barriers, plexiglass, um, hand sanitizing stations, all of that stuff to make sure that we're welcoming players and staff back in a very safe way. Uh, Why couldn't that have been done in some of the earlier stages? You know, we've been working behind the scenes um, to to reopen the casino industry as soon as the provincial health officer uh, allowed us to do that. So, again, we're excited to be able to move into step three, hopefully as early as July 1st, and uh, welcome players back in that safe way. If on July 1st, the mask mandate for indoor areas goes down to a mask recommendation, will it be recommended that masks are worn in casinos or will casinos have their own rules on that? Um, initially, we're going to have our own rules. I mean, recognizing that casinos have been closed for, for 16 months, um, we're taking a really cautious approach. So masks will be required. Face coverings will be required initially upon reopening. And we'll continue to, you know, evolve those measures as we move forward. But for those first little bit of reopening, we are going to require uh, our employees and our players to wear a face covering upon entry. All right. What about the employees? I know there are thousands of people who were working actively in casinos when they were shut down, like you said, 16 months ago. Are they ready to come back or do you have enough staff? We do. Um, As you mentioned, there are about 10,000 people employed in the casino industry right across British Columbia. So it's a very important job generator for the province. And, you know, we've heard from our casino service providers who, who operate casinos on our behalf that employees are really excited to come back and that they are ready, absolutely ready to reopen as early as July 1st. Uh, because we've seen in the some other parts of the labor industry, restaurants in particular, uh, saying lots of people have realized kind of the volatility and have gone on to different types of work or different uh, made a career change. So you're confident, though, people who were in those positions uh, have been getting by doing whatever it, uh, what they could do the, this past 16 months and they are ready? Absolutely. We, we have people uh, ready and uh, ready to come back to reopen casinos as early as July 1st. So I think, you know, it speaks to probably the fun nature of the job. Um, it's a desirable job and, and uh, people love to work in our industry. So we're, we're excited to be able to welcome back uh, thousands of workers right across BC to reopen as early as July 1st. Uh, I know there were stories earlier as well that the slot machines, a lot of the equipment had to stay on for various reasons. So have, has all of that equipment been on for the entire 16 months? It has. Uh, we need to, needed to keep the slot machines on to maintain their, their technical integrity. And we also have been doing, um, you know, software upgrades to the, the gaming systems. And that kind of underpins all of those slot machines and how they work. Um, so those slot machines have remained on, and that's one of the reasons why we're ready to reopen as early as July 1st. 
Right. So that, uh, that would help, I would imagine, because it's not like you're taking the blankets off, turning the lights back on a shuttered industry. They've basically kind of been casinos in waiting. We've been doing our best, absolutely, to make sure that we are ready to reopen as soon as we are allowed to do so. So that's one way we've we've been working to do that, as well as, you know, evolving our health and safety guidelines, working with the provincial health officer, WorkSafe BC, um, and then also updating our training for staff. Um, obviously, lots of people coming back to work, new health and safety guidelines that they need to be up to speed on. Um, but we're confident and we're so excited, again, for hopefully moving into step three uh, as early as July 1st. All right, Lara, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk now a bit more about the modeling numbers that were released yesterday. This, as we get ready to hear more about the reopening plan, that's happening at 1.45 this afternoon. Yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry showed the information that showed, yes, there is an increase in the Delta variant cases of COVID-19, and that could that could continue if social contacts increase as well. Uh, she also talked about the potential that cases could jump back to more than 150 per day by the end of August. Again, if those social contacts go up even more. Let's bring in Caroline Colane, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. What are your thoughts on the numbers, what we're seeing as far as the rolling averages of cases now, the reproduction rate and where we're sitting? Yeah, so cases are going down. I think we had an average of 48 cases over the last uh, three days over the weekend. Um, which, of course, is low, and the rolling average is lower than it's been since uh, last summer, last August. So, you know, that's really showing, because we're reopening, too, that's really showing the huge impact that vaccination is having, um, you know, which is great, which is great to see. And I think that was the main message that we heard yesterday. Does anything stick out for you that we need to be more focused on or more careful about? Is it the, the reproduction number? Is it the percentage of social contact? Anything there? Yeah, so what I would worry about, the only thing I would really worry about is is the variant still. And, you know, we saw this in February and March when you could see overall cases declining, but we knew there should be variants that were rising because that had happened everywhere else. And I worry a little bit about this here, and, and I know Dr. Henry mentioned it with the Delta variant. If we have anything that is growing in BC today and we reopen, then it will grow faster. Right. If it's already growing with, you know, we're not going to vaccinate that many more people by tomorrow that it's going to make a huge difference. So I guess then it's a question of how well the vaccine works against the Delta variant, which, you know, reports are kind of all over the map. And then how fast we can get really way more people. We're doing really well with the NBC, but we actually really need to reach even more people with vaccination. So I think that's kind of up in the air, and it was interesting to, to hear them mention this yesterday. And looking at, I guess, at the younger group as well, because that's one of the things, looking at the UK, where they had a, a good vaccination rate, but they are seeing issues with the Delta variant. But it looks like in those cases, a lot of it is people in the under 30 group that maybe didn't have the higher vaccination rates. Yeah, absolutely. And that group has a lot of social contact with each other. It's often where cases first start to spread. So we had that with the Whistler um, the P1, uh, which is now called Gamma, um, outbreaks here. We started with young people. I think same thing last summer, too. Um, but, yeah, I think it is, you know, a testament to BC's strategy of first rolling out single doses to as many people as possible 
But then also focusing on those high-contact, high-risk essential workers, that has put us in a much more robust position, and we, you know, which is great. And I think we're seeing the benefits of that now as we don't have huge rises in that age group. Um, you know, I think to me the issue is really what's the efficacy with Delta and what are the Delta numbers? Because those are hard to, hard to tease out from the reports just because they're portions and they're, it's, it's hard to see like the actual numbers. So if that's growing, I think we need to be monitoring that. And it sounds like they're very aware of that. And when you talk about the actual numbers, is that because of the testing rates or the number of people that are being tested at this point as well? Well, it's because they've been reporting the Delta numbers as the fraction of those that were sequenced, but they weren't sequencing everything until June. And so how many cases were sequenced isn't clear. So if you have the fraction of those that are sequenced, but you don't know what the denominator is, then it's hard to know what is the number. And from that, it's hard to estimate how fast it's growing. So it, it was interesting to, to hear on in your intro that, that uh, Dr. Henry had said there is a rise in Delta if that's true and we just proceed with reopening, we might expect that rise to grow, although it's also possible if the numbers are so small, you know, it's possible that very localized public health ac- actions could tamp down any clusters or outbreaks of the Delta variant at this point with only an average of 48 cases a day. Maybe it's possible that that's very localized and can just be contained. Um, but, of course, it'll likely be reintroduced as people begin to travel and, and do recreational travel across Canada and, of course, internationally. Right. I, I, that was the number I thought was interesting, which said the Delta variant currently makes up 12% of variant cases, but it's been doubling each week for the past few weeks. Variants in general now make up more than 90% of all BC cases. Yeah, that's interesting. It couldn't have been doubling each week because it was sort of at 9 or 10% a while ago. So that's puzzling. And that's I, I agree, that's where kind of reading these tea leaves of, of what's going on with Delta is a challenge. And it's just similar challenge across the country, although the data in Alberta did show that the Delta variant is growing there. And we're not so different from Alberta. Maybe we have somewhat different vaccination rates. But to me, you know, right now, from what we know, vaccines, especially having two doses, look very effective against all the variants. I think, you know, the message to take from that is we should be looking, we should be concerned about anything that is growing, even while overall cases decline. But we really need to get vaccines first doses out to everybody who's eligible and second doses out now that we have the supply. All right, Caroline, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for joining us and talking more about this. Absolutely. Thank you. That is Caroline Colain, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. This is Mornings with Simi. We're talking about the heat wave and how that is prompting some people to book local hotels. Ingrid Jarrett is the president and CEO of the BC Hotel Association on the line with us now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. What is happening with local hotels? I've heard anecdotally of some people doing this. Are you seeing a lot of people booking in and trying to get that air conditioning? Yeah, I am hearing, especially in the urban centers, that people are recognizing we Uh, You know, if you're working from a home office right now and you don't have air conditioning, that can be a very difficult uh, scenario. And certainly hotels are set up with great internet and very good air conditioning systems and other amenities that would make a few days in a hotel a welcome uh, change of location right now for a home office or even people who are living in apartments or 
or homes that do not have air conditioning, especially in the lower mainland where it's just the extreme heat right now is something we've never seen. And are these hotels that have been hit pretty hard by the pandemic with that loss of tourism dollars? Oh, absolutely, Jill. So, you know, it's a all of a sudden the phones are ringing and uh, certainly the heat wave is part of it. But the other thing is I think people are realizing that they're free to travel. It's safe to travel. Today's announcement hopefully will confirm that. And so people are making their uh, summer vacation uh, plans. And certainly we're seeing the phones ringing. I'm hearing from all over the province, which is such a relief. But I can say that the challenge is we are so short of people to work. Everybody is frantically trying to rehire employees and train new employees. And the phone is ringing. And, you know, it's good news that the phone is ringing and business is coming in the door. And it's very challenging because we're so short of our workforce. And is that because people were laid off and went and found work elsewhere? Or what happened to everybody? Well, yeah, we, first of all, when we went into the pandemic, we had the worst labor shortage we'd ever faced. There was over 20,000 positions left unfilled in BC alone in our industry, and that would be 2019 numbers. And then, of course, we had uh, the uh, medical and the long-term care um, rehiring, or not rehiring, but the government had an initiative to hire many, many more people for the public sector with the skill sets that actually are, exist in our industry. And then the other tra- very traditional work uh, force that we have is working holiday visas, of which there would be thousands in British Columbia. And these are trained people in hospitality from other countries um, that are young people working. They're not here. There's no international students, of which there are also thousands. There also is circumstances where many people who would work in the industry are actually home looking after families due to the pandemic and changing work demands. So, um, you know, there's there's a dire need, thousands and thousands of positions, and that is in every community around the province. All right. We've only got about 20 seconds. So, So quickly, your advice then for somebody booking sounds like if you know you're going to travel, you should do it sooner rather than later. Well, I would just say when you are traveling, definitely book your travel. Go somewhere you haven't been before and be patient and be kind and enjoy your summer vacation. All right, Ingrid, thanks so much. That is Ingrid Jarrett, President and CEO of the BC Hotel Association, seeing a huge increase in the number of bookings, both locally and people looking to get away in the summer, getting to those new neighborhoods. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, yesterday we talked about how spending habits have changed, how people like to purchase things that make them feel good. What about buying local? Our show contributor, Raji Sohal, back with us now. And Raji, you've been checking in with some local clothing retailers on what they've been seeing during the pandemic. Yeah, I've been calling around. I called a shop in uh, White Rock and one in Surrey and one in Burnaby and one in Gastown and uh, near downtown Vancouver and downtown Vancouver. And it was really interesting. I'm hearing from local shop owners in Vancouver that feel-good shopping is not only up, but that the pandemic has changed shopping habits and even made people learn more about the importance of you know shopping with uh, an environmental conscience and of trying to break that fast fashion cycle. I personally have never found that 
just like retail therapy has worked, you know, just shopping when you want to defeat boredom or any other emotion you're trying to avoid. I've always found it kind of empty myself. Uh, but I have noticed that given like some of the environmental changes that we've seen over the pandemic um, and the conversations around that, that I've started to look for stuff that's more local, more ethically made. You know, as we started to see, Jill, like when in India, the air pollution had cleared so dramatically at the beginning of the pandemic that people could see the Himalayas again. You remember that? Yes. Or that, yeah, that in Venice, the canals were, were clearing, the water was becoming um, just of a better quality. Um, when that stuff started to happen, I was wondering, well, you know, car, less cars on the road and what can we all do? What can, how can we make a difference? And I, and I did look at my own shopping habits and I talked to um, Michelle Rosardo. She owns a shop called One of a Few. It's a small clothing retail store in Gastown. They don't sell anything that's mass market made. So it's all ethical. It's, uh, you know, in fact, most of it is made by people right here in Vancouver, designers right here. And she says that when the pandemic started, um, that tourists were no longer obviously supporting the business. So she was suddenly worried, like, okay, locals are going to have to keep us afloat. And, and is that enough? Here's Michelle. Now, once doors have opened, I've, I've heard so many people come in and say, I've never been here. I know you online. I'm so excited to come see the shop. And I've been here brick and mortar for 16 years. And to have somebody come in and say that is great because that just means that more people are now a part of our community. So, yes, I think there is an insurgence for sure. And I think it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and there's a lot at stake if we don't support local small businesses, small clothing retailers here in Vancouver. There was a local social media campaign several months ago from retailers about how supporting Amazon and ordering everything from Amazon means that you're eventually going to lose these little local stores that add so much character to our city. And Michelle said her customers have been right there with her. Once there was an uptick in the feel-good spending again, she saw new customers coming to her small shop in Gastown because they didn't want run-of-the-mill fast fashion. And the pandemic, she said, was literally the thing that was responsible for making them uh, seek out ethical clothes and, and really help her store thrive. Here's Michelle again. Feel-good spending is totally correlated to zero waste, you know, spending your money locally, putting it back into your own community, not having everything shipped. And I, I, I saw a huge shift of seeing things that are local as a positive instead of, oh, it's, it, it, historically I would say that sometimes people put this, oh, it's made locally with quotations around the word locally. But I think in Vancouver, in BC, people have been, able to be really creative. There's been a huge insurgence of designers, people who maybe lost work, who, you know, were laid off and were at home and all of a sudden had time to really put into their creative outlets and buyers love it. People want to spend money that somebody's worked really hard on it. They, it comes from their heart. You know, it's just, it's been really, a really beautiful switch. Very interesting, because then there's also the, the the spending issue of it as well. If something maybe costs a little bit more, but are you willing, are you able to spend more? You're investing in the artist, the local designer, and all of that involved in it too. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, it's about, in my opinion, buying less, but buying better. So 
I personally am done with fast fashion. I don't do it anymore. And if that means that I can't afford like a pair of, for example, ethically made jeans when it comes to get a pair of jeans, ah, I don't get one. And that's just the way that that I have now committed to. And, and, and Michelle and other shop owners were telling me that they're seeing more of that kind of a change from their customers. I also asked all of them, uh, including Michelle, about whether this was, they saw any like correlation to age and shopping preferences. And interestingly, they said no, hmm. um, that they were finding that uh, people of all ages, younger and older, were, were starting to think more environmentally and, and that that when they made a purchase that was kind of bigger, like say you buy a coat that costs a bit more, but it was made locally, that that feels better than something that you know is probably going to fall apart after a few wears and that kind of thing. All right. We'll leave it there. That is show contributor Raji Soho.